Ladies and gentlemen, please give a warm welcome to the Brigham's Vice Chair of the Department of Medicine, Dr. Dale Adler. Thank you very much. It's a real privilege to be here. First, it will be a real privilege for me to address our panel, and you'll see why. And it's a real privilege to talk to all of you. Many of you are our patients, which means you've expressed real confidence in us, which we appreciate. And you're our donors. And what you do, as Dr. Nabel said, is absolutely so important. The Brigham is not a stranger to cardiovascular innovation and care. Among the very first heart valves put in, in the world were done at the Brigham. It was a tough procedure in those days. The first several procedures actually didn't go very well, but there was a persistence, and everybody knows what subsequently happened. Brigham was also one of the earliest leaders in figuring out that you can interrupt a heart attack, and that's taken on an entire field and changed the way we approach medicine. The Brigham was also very important in figuring out the early role of aspirin, and then the Brigham was heavily involved in uh, medication that probably most of these people are carrying in their pockets today, statins, to lower their cholesterol. And the Brigham was right on the forefront of the initial medications to treat heart failure when a person's main pumping chamber just was not going to work. And over the years, the Brigham's had a substantial and leadership role in genetics of the heart muscle through a number of our laboratories, and then in the whole role of inflammation and what that means along with cholesterol in terms of what happens to blood vessels. But it's not all in the ancient past. It's all really up to date. And if you look at the program for the American Heart Association year after year, including the last few years, people from the Brigham lead that. They're on the forefront of the PCSK9s. These are agents that people inject maybe every two weeks or every month that lowers cholesterol substantially. And they're on the forefront of medications that we thought were going to be used to treat diabetes. And they do that extremely well, but they also treat heart failure and vascular disease, even in people who don't have diabetes. And a new heart failure combination to complement what was used in the past. But when people ask, well, what is the Brigham really, really good at? Why would I go there? I say, the reason you come to the Brigham is because that's where you're going to have people listen to what you're telling them, and they're going to think about you, and they're going to make the right kind of decisions. So I recently had a patient, 91 years old, happens to be a physician. He doesn't practice, but he still does research. He walks to his office every day. I had seen him a few years ago when he had fluid around his heart. He developed a metastatic prostate cancer along the way, and our friends at the Dana-Farber figured out how to keep that in order. And he comes to see me, and he describes discomfort that he's getting as he walks to his office. And I'm thinking, the last thing I want this person to have is some kind of major heart issue, and I'm hoping I could somehow in my mind explain away what he's telling me, but I can't. We put him on a treadmill, and he develops the discomfort, and it's a nasty-looking treadmill, and we do an angiogram, and the problem is in his left main coronary artery. It involves two-thirds of the blood supply of his heart. So we have to think, what do we do with this 91-year-old man with the cancer who has this problem? Is it possible that he would undergo 
an operation, and you'll hold that, and we'll talk about it a little later. And I saw an 84-year-old woman who happened to have, at a young age, a head and neck tumor, and she had radiation, and it cured the tumor, but over the years, she's become pretty slight. Her brain is absolutely fantastic, but she weighs about 90 pounds, and as a result of her radiation, we've had to put a stent in the artery on the front of her heart, She's received some work so that she would stop having a rhythm disturbance, the top chamber on the left side of her heart. She's received a valve through her skin without opening her up. But now she walks along for a while and intermittently she feels exceedingly lightheaded. And the question is where on this slight, slight chest that's been radiated, where in the world would you put a pacemaker? Is that even possible? And we'll come back to that, and we'll think about it. But I want to introduce to you what is really a terrific panel. And I think people will come up as I say their name. We'll do that. So I see Dr. Usha Tedro, who's coming up. And Usha is one of our electrophysiologists, which means she thinks a lot about the electrical system of the heart. And when patients come to see Usha, it, we say it's for the real thing, sudden death. They have died not only once, but usually two or three times. And they've often been elsewhere and people can't figure it out. And what I love about Usha is when I'm on the inpatient service and we're finishing up at about 10 o'clock at night with our residents, that's when I get a call from Usha. She's had her whole team there all day and she'll say, you know, so-and-so. She said, we thought it was gonna be whatever and it was, but then we also persisted and we found it was several other things but I think it's gonna be all taken care of now. And she's right, she's right over and over again. But we'll enjoy hearing what she has to say. And we have Dr. Yoshi Kaneko. Yoshi is a cardiac surgeon, and he absolutely knows his way around the inside of a chest uh, and can do that. But Yoshi is also on the vanguard and just superb at doing heart surgery through a catheter without opening the chest. And what I love about Yoshi is the answer is never, no, we can't do it. The answer is always, we're going to think about it, and we are going to figure out a way to do it. And he's right over and over again. So it's a complete pleasure to have Yoshi. He landed. He was here for about an hour, and he was on TV. Maybe some of you saw him. It's absolutely in a lot of demand. And then a pleasure to bring up somebody who needs no introduction to you, Dr. Pat O'Gara and probably virtually everyone here knows Pat. And you do not need me to tell you, Pat is one of the true deans of cardiology, not only in the country, but in the world. Pat sits on or chairs many of the major guideline committees. These are committees that try to figure out how to explain to other physicians what they should be doing. But what I really like about Pat and he doesn't know this. So my office in our clinic is opposite two of Pat's exam rooms. So he's already out the door, but I get to hear what his patients say after he's left. <laughs> <laughs> and it's fabulous. So they say things like, he's really something. Okay, that's pretty good. And then they say, he put it together for us. And then they say, this is the first time I understand it. And then somebody says, I hear him say this, and he made a real decision, and now we know what we're going to do. And so obviously, real honor to have Pat with us. 
And then Dr. Chuck Morris, who is one of our superb internists, part of the BCMA practice, and also one of the people who really helps us keep the hospital running from the standpoint of safety as well as education and making sure that all the right pieces are in place. And Chuck does that at the same time he balances his patient panel. And I think that he is the person who understands how to interweave all the specialists involved. So it's always a real pleasure to get a call from Chuck to talk about a patient or to hear his thoughts on putting things together. So this is a great group. We're looking forward to what they have to say. And if I'm fortunate at the end, maybe they'll allow me to join them again and we'll talk about our patients. Great. Thank you. Thanks. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Dale. As we started on these questions tonight, I want to just recognize this format as a really powerful visual. So what do I mean by that? As a general internist, I don't usually see cardiovascular consultations sitting on a couch with my three dear friends in front of 200 friends joining us for a wonderful evening. That engagement instead usually looks like this. I stop Pat on the bridge between the Shapiro building and the Brunwald Tower to ask him about a complex lipid problem about a patient we share. Or I call Yoshi to just touch base about a patient whose aortic valve he replaced two years ago who's actually doing incredibly well. Or I email Usha about a patient whose atrial fibrillation is becoming such a problem, but he's worried the intervention is going to affect his athleticism. So these are all three cases that have just, I just actually went through my emails this morning. This is really what sort of happens here at the Brigham. And I think this clinical dialogue tonight is really meant to be a symbol and represent what is a core strength of Brigham Health, which is our ability to deliver multidisciplinary care that is collaborative, that's expert, and that's timely. I'm in the great opportunity to have to throw questions at them. As Ron Walls warned me, I get to play Maury Povich. I wasn't sure if that's a warning or a threat or a compliment. Um, but anyway, we're going to dive right in. And I'd like to actually start with Pat. Pat, heart disease remains the number one killer in America. And we talk about heart disease, though, as a very broad umbrella term. I think for the sake of tonight's conversation, can you just help give us some framework for when we talk about heart disease, what do we mean? Sure. Well, thanks, Maury. It's really a pleasure to be here with you. And uh, I also want to thank all of you for coming and for spending a few minutes with us so that we can touch on a variety of topics that are very common among our patients as well as among many people across the world. Unfortunately, Chuck, heart disease is the number one killer worldwide, not only here in the United States. And the incidence of heart disease is rapidly increasing in low and middle income countries where now non-communicable diseases have caught up with issues around cholera and diphtheria and some of the other things with which our healthcare systems used to deal. But here in the United States, when we think about heart disease, the first thing that comes to your mind is a heart attack. And I think Dale, as well as Chuck, have already touched on this. A heart attack is usually caused by a blockage of blood flow in one of the arteries on the surface of the heart. And it gets there in the first place, usually because of years of damage to the lining of the blood vessel. The blood vessel lining becomes damaged by things like cigarette smoking, or things like hypertension, or things like diabetes. And at a particularly vulnerable moment, this smoldering abscess 
of diseased blood lining ruptures. And a plaque is then suddenly visited by all sorts of things that create a blood clot right at that spot. And a heart attack ensues. And depending on the amount of time during which the vessel itself is completely occluded, heart muscle is killed. And a heart attack equates with dead heart muscle. And if there's enough heart muscle that is killed in the process, our patients develop heart failure. The most common cause of heart failure in the United States would be an antecedent heart attack. But there are other things that we should keep in mind about the heart and the blood vessel. One thing is, of course, that the heart is not just a muscle pump. It has a very intricate electrical system that tells the chambers to interact with each other at the right time. And then there are a series of valves inside the heart that regulate the direction in which the blood flow is occurring. All of these things have to work together in concert in order to provide the blood flow that we need to stand up in the morning, to think straight, to get through our daily routine, and mostly, of course, to exercise. And I think we should put in perspective how important this problem is. In the United States, with respect to heart attack, there's a new heart attack every 30 to 40 seconds, not minutes, not hours, and not days. And in any year in the United States over the course of the past five years, there are one million new heart attacks, one million opportunities for us as cardiovascular clinicians, researchers, scientists, and educationalists to try to make a difference. This is an enormous public health problem, but it's not the only problem we face. And I'm interested in the comments from my colleagues here about electrical problems, atrial fibrillation, which of course is a very common malady that we develop as we get older, that travels with a lot of other things that we mention in this kind of a discussion. And I think Usha would be great for you to touch on some of those. So actually it's a great segue. Usha, would you mind saying a little bit, Pat had mentioned arrhythmias and electrical disorders of the heart. What are some of the common interventions that you and your team are doing? In particular, what's new and novel at the Brigham? Right, so atrial fibrillation is the most common heart rhythm problem in the United States. And what is it? It's a rhythm problem where the upper chambers of the heart suddenly beat rapidly and irregularly, and the lower chambers of the heart try to keep up. If you had x-ray vision and you could see the upper chambers of the heart, when they're beating rapidly like that, they don't empty of blood on each beat. And so little bits of blood can get caught in the upper chambers of the heart and form a clot. And those clots could break off and cause a stroke. Up to two thirds of the strokes that occur in this country are as a consequence of atrial fibrillation. And one of the most important parts of the treatment for atrial fibrillation is related to controlling blood clots and controlling stroke. And the Brigham was actually involved in the forefront of developing some of the new blood thinners that are being used over the last five to seven years as some of the standard therapy for the atrial fibrillation. Whereas before, there used to be only one option, which was Coumadin or warfarin, which had a lot of problems with side effects and interactions with other medications. And now there are other, much more simple to take medications that are actually more effective and are safer. 
For some of the patients that can't take a blood thinner because of bleeding problems, there are new devices that can actually plug the parts of the upper chamber of the heart that can prevent strokes from that portion of the heart. And that's also being spearheaded by our group. But I think one of the other really important areas to think of, you know, Dr. O'Gara mentioned areas where we can potentially change our risk for heart disease. And for a long time, we thought that atrial fibrillation is something that you get more and more as you get older, and there's not much that we can do to prevent its coming. And in 2010, I was involved in a study with my colleague, Christine Albert, in looking at people as they gain body weight over time. And it turns out that if you gain weight, your risk of developing atrial fibrillation over time is dramatically increased. And just in the last year, there was a very interesting study out of Australia that built on those findings that found that if you maintain a healthy body weight and if you maintain a healthy degree of exercise capacity, you can actually have benefits with respect to your atrial fibrillation that are as much as having a catheter procedure. The other areas where it can be helpful to control your atrial fibrillation is actually alcohol consumption, which I hate to bring up while we're all having dinner and having a little bit of alcohol, but it turns out that if you moderate your alcohol consumption, it helps to control your amount of atrial fibrillation that you have. Other areas that are important are sleep apnea, which is something that can lead to snoring, but it also leads to paroxysms of high blood pressure that can make people more prone to developing atrial fibrillation. And that's something that also has an interaction with weight. So if your weight is well controlled, that can be very helpful. Despite all of these things, sometimes folks still need medications to control atrial fibrillation or a catheter procedure called an ablation, where we put a catheter through the veins in the legs up to the upper chambers of the heart to cauterize particular parts of the heart that cause atrial fibrillation. It's gotten much better over the last 10 years. The success rates are very high now. It's mainly good for control and quality of life for people that have atrial fibrillation, but it's a tough procedure because you have to undergo general anesthesia you spend a night in the hospital. And one of my colleagues, Dr. Zai, is working on some very interesting new innovations in atrial fibrillation where he's looking at focused x-ray beams to actually deliver the zapping that we do with a catheter currently from outside the body in a procedure that could last 15 minutes with no catheters introduced into the body, no general anesthesia. It's a huge paradigm shift for our field, a real disruptive technology. And he's for the first time shown that this is possible, that it could an ablation procedure could be performed from outside of the body with focused ultrasound. So really excited about those developments. Fantastic. And I'm going to use that opportunity to actually segue now to our local media TV star. Those of you who saw it at 11 o'clock on Channel 5, and I'm sure we played later, but Dr. Yoshi Kaneko. Yoshi, Usha had brought up this idea of less invasive or minimally invasive interventions. And as a surgeon, I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about certainly what that landscape has looked like for patients who traditionally have been thought to be too high of an operative risk to maybe have a standard heart surgery, and then sort of pivot to what does that now mean for lower risk patients? Right. So thank you, Chuck. Over the past 10 years, the treatment of valve disease has dramatically changed, and it's gone into a whole new different level of minimally invasive procedures. And what that means in the heart is a catheter procedure. So that allows to avoid open heart surgery. And, you know, I've seen five patients in clinic last Tuesday, and all of them told me, so I don't have to crack open the chest, right? I don't have to crack open the chest, right? The fifth patient, I actually told them, you don't have to crack open the chest. <laughs> and they were very satisfied. 
So the two most common disease, the valvular disease, one is called aortic stenosis, which is a narrowing of the aortic valve, which is the exit valve of the heart, and also mitral regurgitation, meaning that leaky valve and the mitral valve, which is on the left chamber in between the two heart chambers. And these two procedures traditionally required open heart surgery to be treated. But now we have a transcatheter method. So for the aortic valve, uh, the procedure is called transcatheter aortic valve replacement. TAVR, we call it TAVR. This goes through the growing artery, goes retrograde into the valve. And the valve, the ones that we commonly use, is mounted on a balloon. And once you go through the valve, you blow up the balloon and this balloon captures the calcium of the valve and pushes that calcium like an accordion, the old valve like an accordion, and it stays in place. The other procedure for the mitral valve is called a mitral clip. And this one goes, I think uh, Dr. Nabel showed a quick photo of a firefighter, but this procedure goes through the vein of the groin, goes from the right side of the heart to the left side of the heart, and mitral valve has two leaflets, so it clips those two leaflets and prevents the valve from prolapsing or leaking. And the advancement has been quite dramatic. So oftentimes we see patients after open heart surgery, um, post-opera day number one, you know, they might still have breathing tube in. And when you talk to them, they're sort of, you know, drowsy and, you know, very difficult to have a conversation. Whereas these transcatheter procedures, they go home the next day. It's that different. So there's been a dramatic difference. And to talk to you about the low-risk yeah. patients, so traditionally, when this procedure, the TAVR procedure, was approved back in 2011 by the FDA, it was only approved for patients who were ineligible for open-heart surgery. So this was only preserved for patients who did not tolerate open-heart surgery. However, through multiple research studies and also multiple generations of newer valves, these procedures have gotten so better and most recently, last year, FDA approved it for all comers. So now, even the low-risk, younger patients can get this transcatheter procedure. However, there's a caveat to this. There are some patients that are not really suitable anatomically or other medical conditions. They actually do better in a long term with surgery. And the procedure has gotten so easy nowadays. You know, there are a lot of centers in Florida that can do this procedure. That's what I said on TV. <laughs> but... Um, I think the strength of the Brigham is, number one, we have the highest volume in New England. We have the most experience. But the more stronger point is the teamwork that we have. Yeah. We sort of spoke about the multidisciplinary team. But when we do these procedures, patients are usually seen by a surgeon, interventional cardiologist, a imager, echocardiographer or CT scan specialist, and also a senior cardiologist like Dr. O'Gara or Dr. Adler. And we all gather our brain to treat this. And we all care about the patient and we try to come up with the best solution for the patient. And to me, that is the strength of the Brigham. We do that better than anybody else. Fantastic. And those of you who missed the news brief, Yoshi welcomes anybody interested in TAVR from this area to come up to North and see how we do it up in Boston. Yeah. So I want to make sure that invitation stands, right, Yoshi? Yes. Pat, can you say a little bit more about this multidisciplinary team from your perspective where you sure. stand? Yeah. Well, I think uh, first a shout out to our nurses. I know that our chief nursing officer is here. Yeah. So, 
probably the worst kept secret in medicine is that a multidisciplinary team to care for patients is only as good as the nurse navigator. <laughs> Without which, I think we wouldn't really be in the position that Yoshi just described, the Brigham, the best kept secret, I think, is the Brigham leads in volume when it comes to these kinds of transcatheter procedures that revolutionize the care of patients with valvular heart disease. The most important person is the nurse navigator who makes that personal touch, provides that personal relationship to a patient, to a family, and helps them navigate through a series of diagnostic procedures, and oftentimes a little bit of space in the diagnostic workup, because as Dale was saying at the beginning, sometimes we need to think about what the right answer is. And the wonderful thing about a functioning multidisciplinary team is that you leave your ego at the door, everybody provides their input depending on their competence, and also depending on their relationship and knowledge of the patient and the family. The second most important thing for multidisciplinary team functioning is to know what the patients in the family really want. What do you value? What are your preferences? How far do you want to go down this road? Here's the trade-off between surgery and here's the trade-off with a transcatheter technique. And by the way, Medicines still work for a variety of things. As you can see from the interaction here, we actually get along. <laughs> and that's a great thing. I grew up in a different era of surgery and cardiology like Dr. Nabel and maybe like Dr. Keeney, my boss, who's a little younger than, um, than we are. But there was a time, of course, where there was this great competition. Surgeons felt that cardiologists were putting in too many stents. And cardiologists thought that surgeons were doing too many bypass procedures. That's all 20th century stuff. And nowadays, decision-making is very seamless. And I can give you an example of a patient the four of us actually share. So who's the person who's got the greatest knowledge base about what the patient and the family want? Chuck, who's been dealing with the internal medicine problems over the course of maybe 10 or 15 years. And I'm just a general cardiologist, so I usually listen to stories, examine patients, and then I'm a consumer of all sorts of things, echoes and CT scans, wonderful stress tests, all of the things that the Brigham leads the way in, the best imaging in North America, as far as I'm concerned. And then I have a patient who's had a heart attack, like I just talked to you about, and that heart attack is complicated by heart failure. And then guess what? Their mitral valve starts to leak, and then they get atrial fibrillation. And I'm not smart enough to figure out whether we should take care of their atrial fibrillation first, or whether they should have a mitral clip and a bypass operation and a stent along the way, and then maybe Usha can bail us all out. <laughs> But those are the real patients and the real problems that we face. And no one anymore is in a position of knowing everything about everything. There's just too much information to know. And unless you're able to work within this kind of team construct, then your patients suffer, I think, in the process. So we eventually figured out, and sometimes we have to go through a little bit of a rehearsal and a choreography, if this, then that. And sometimes we have to turn left when we're halfway down the street. But as long as we can have these kinds of discussions, I think we'll probably hit the mark more often than we don't. And that's important. Fantastic. Great. 
Thank you, Pat. I'm not going to let you give up the mic yet because we started talking about prevention. So as we talk prevention. about all of these interventions that we can do in the presence of disease, I don't want to lose sight of the things that everyone in this room can do to avoid that disease from being manifested. Well, maybe we should stand up and sort of run in place to get started. <laughs> not right now. Not right now. So it's pretty simple. Unfortunately, we live in an environment that doesn't necessarily reward good behavior. That's a political statement, I'm sorry. <laughs> but now let's just think about this from the perspective of your heart. There are several simple things that can be done for ourselves. It's never too late, certainly for our children, and most importantly, for our grandchildren. What would those things be? Never smoke. Don't even think about smoking. If you're thinking about smoking, you're going to be shut off in some outer space kind of straitjacket from which you cannot escape. <laughs> so cigarette smoking is the enemy, right? Try to maintain a good body weight. And if you're concerned about what a good body weight might be, there are actually tables that you can consult about how much you should weigh for your height. And it's really as simple as that. Physical activity. Usha mentioned this before about how to avoid some atrial fibrillation problems. Physical activity, 150 minutes a week of good aerobic activity, walking on a treadmill. You don't need to run a marathon. So that's five days at 30 minutes, three days at 50 minutes. And I know several of you here in the audience, I'm looking at Mr. Ryan, of course, who does four miles the day after an appendectomy. So you know, Tom's in good shape. And Tom is a paragon of what it takes to be physically active. Know what your blood pressure is and know what your cholesterol is. If you know your social security number, sometimes I have to look mine up, you must know what your cholesterol profile is. And then generally, the lower is better. There's a lot of confusion out there about statins and this and diet. Just remember, for cholesterol, lower is definitely better. And if you've had the misfortune of needing a stent or a bypass operation, or you've had a prior heart attack, then you really have to get your cholesterol in the basement, in the basement, not even on the first floor, really low. And let's not forget about blood pressure, because that's really the silent, silent killer, like atrial fibrillation can be for some people who develop various types of vascular dementia. Remember last year when we were here with Dr. Weiner and Dr. Selko, and we were talking about dementia we're talking about multiple sclerosis with Mrs. Romney. Blood pressure is very important for brain health. And this is also an area in which the Brigham has contributed enormous amounts of information about how to recognize blood pressure, how to treat blood pressure, how to understand the genetics of blood pressure, and how to figure out when people have special kinds of blood pressure. And this intricate relationship with brain health which is so important. Even we as cardiovascular clinicians try to get the big picture. And the brain is really front and center, protecting the brain, keeping it healthy, and avoiding things that the brain and the heart do when they're really not in sync. Sleeping, making sure that you sleep restfully. And I really like the change now that we refer to ourselves not so much as a hospital, but Brigham Health. And that's the way it should be around your cardiovascular wellness. Think about that in order to try to stay one step ahead of the game. Life's simple seven is what the American Heart Association likes to refer to, but it's really about diet, exercise, weight, not smoking, knowing what your blood pressure is, sleeping well, mindfulness, 
and moderating most of their intake of things that really make us otherwise feel too good. <laughs> Fantastic. Pat, thank you. Usha, I want to just bring it back to you because I know I've heard a few questions that came up earlier around what's new technologically with rhythm and rhythm disorders. You want to just say a word about what's out there to both detect and monitor patients with arrhythmias. Absolutely. So I think one of the big innovations in my field of heart rhythm problems is what they call wearables. And what do I mean by that? I mean, like the Apple Watch that some of you may be wearing. There's a device called the Cardia device where you can put your fingers or other things on a little electrode and make an EKG on your own at home. There are other devices like the Fitbit that can monitor your heart rhythm to some degree. And this is just an exploding area. I actually go over to MIT to lecture to the undergraduate students there. And there are a number of people in the MIT Media Lab that are working on fabrics that can contain monitoring equipment that could in the future monitor our breathing as well as our heart rhythm. There was recently a study looking at the Apple Watch, which has been FDA approved for monitoring for atrial fibrillation. And it's been demonstrated to be effective in doing that. And I think it's an amazing thing because in my area, we're very good at detecting arrhythmias in people that we know have risk factors. So people who we know are a little overweight, people who we know have high blood pressure, but there's a huge group of people that are at risk that have these rhythm problems and are at risk for the complications like stroke or even sudden death that don't have any of the traditional risk factors. Many of them are women. And these types of monitoring devices, I think, are going to be critical in identifying the problems that these patients have. I would have to say in the three to five years that these devices have been available, I have a handful of patients whose lives have been saved by the heart rhythm problems that have been detected by these devices. I think, though, on the flip side of it, you know, we all have this technology information overload problem in different parts of our lives. And I think that this is a situation where the relationship between the patient and their doctor needs to be tighter than ever, because I think there are a lot of algorithms that come with these devices that try to interpret for you what they say. And I think that is not a good way for a patient to be managed. I think it has to be done in consultation with your physician. Make sure that everyone can interpret correctly what's being read by these devices. Because in healthy people without any other medical problems, those algorithms can be wrong up to 20% of the time. And you don't want to be made more anxious by something that's an artifact that's being developed by the devices. So I think these wearables are here to stay. They're going to be a huge part of our future in terms of detecting cardiovascular disease, but I think we also all need to work together really well to make sure that we're getting good data out of these devices. Great, Trey. Thanks. Great advice, Susha. So before I get to our final question of the panel, I want to invite Dale, Dr. Adler, to come and join us because, Dale, I'm hoping that you could give us a little bit of closure. You described two patients at the start of the session, a 91-year-old patient and an 84-year-old patient. I'm wondering if you can explain how we provided care to those very, very complex situations. Thank you. Guys, that was spectacular. Really. It, it's early. <laughs> yeah. We're not done yet. Dude. So I'll ask Yoshi and Pat. So my 91-year-old, left main, flies two-thirds of the heart, problem, but he's had a prostate cancer. And what would be the possible approaches? So, of course, traditionally, if you have a left main disease, which is before the left coronary artery bifurcates, that means that you have two arteries blocked. 
people have shown or previous studies have shown multiple times that open heart surgery with cabbage, the coronary artery bypass grafting, has been more effective. So, you know, when you hear the word left main, the first question that I will have to ask is whether this patient is a candidate for open heart surgery in cabbage. And 91-year-old, you know, I'm pretty aggressive, but I sort of have to think about it twice. I think the age is very important. And for 91-year-old to go through the recovery phase, I think that is the part that is underestimated because when people talk about survival, 90% survival, you know, you would say, oh, we'll take that chance. But what people don't know is that within that 90% survival, maybe half of them are in the rehab for six months. What does that account to? And for that reason, I don't think 91-year-old should be getting cabbages. I'll ask Pat, what would be the other possibility? So the other possibility, Dale, I think is a stent, as you had alluded to. And we have the benefit of some very, very good interventional cardiologists who've shown us over the years that contrary to what we used to think in the 20th century, you can work inside this special artery and successfully manage the blockage by deploying a stent most of the time without serious complication. And certainly the older one is, and the more medical problems, as Yoshi was pointing out, the more difficult the journey with surgery, this is a very viable alternative. And that is exactly what happened. And what's remarkable, came in on the morning, had the stent put in, and he went home the same day. I thought that was remarkable. And our interventionalists are so superb when they called me and said, it's done. I said, terrific. And I'm thinking, he's not going to look great. He looks terrific. He's dressed. He's ready to go home <laughs> right then and there. <laughs> yeah. And now I'm going to ask Usha about my other patient. So 84 and just a wisp, only 90 pounds. And we've done a lot of things to her. And the idea of where would you put a pacemaker in her and what would the options be? Right. So the first, we have to talk a little bit about what's a pacemaker and how do we put it in. So a pacemaker is a small box about this big. These days, they're quite small. They're about the size of a stack of quarters, we like to say. They're implanted right by the shoulder, and then we make a little incision by the groove of the shoulder, make a little pocket under the skin. But the critical thing also is we have to put a wire into the vein that runs behind the collarbone into the heart. And that's what allows the pacemaker to pace the heart. And I believe you said that your patient had had some radiation as well to the chest. And that often makes the veins really narrow and very hard to put a pacemaker wire in. So in the past, a patient like that couldn't have gotten a pacemaker at all. But there is a new type of pacemaker called a leadless pacemaker. It's a little device about this big that has a tiny screw on the end of it. And all of the circuitry of a pacemaker is contained in that little device. It can be implanted through a vein in the leg. We deploy it through a special catheter, screw that little screw right into the heart muscle that holds it there pull that whole rest of the apparatus out of the heart, and all that remains in the patient is this tiny little device that can act as a pacemaker, and it's perfect for petite patients that cannot accommodate even the small pacemakers that we have today. No, and that's exactly what she received, and it's worked beautifully. So nothing, no scar, no nothing. All right. So before we send everybody on their way, or I ask Dr. Nabel to come up and close out the eating, I'm going to give a very focused, bulleted question to our three panelists. We talked a lot about present, current day at the Brigham, and what's being done that's really exciting. But I want to hear from each of you, 
what's coming down the pike, both literally and figuratively, at the Brigham and Women's that excites you most as we're on the cusp of a new decade? Usha, you want to take that one first? Sure. I think one of the things that I'm personally the most excited about is I'm leading a new ventricular arrhythmia program. So this is something to treat patients with lower chamber heart rhythm problems, often people that have had a heart attack or have a lot of weakened heart muscle problems. And we have some new catheter techniques that have been developed that are only being used at the Brigham that are being offered to these patients. It's a big multi-team approach for these very challenging patients that involve our heart failure colleagues, our cardiac surgeons, our anesthesiologists. And I'm just really excited about that whole program and what it can offer to these patients. It's unique at the Brigham and it's really not offered anywhere else internationally. Terrific. Yoshi? Well, I'm truly passionate about transcatheter therapies. So, of course, my choice is going to be that. And in particular, the mitral valve is something that we really look forward to because aortic valve is sort of like riding a bicycle. It's a very, very simple valve. It just opens and closes. But the mitral valve is a completely different structure. People refer to it as driving a 787. So, you know, it's that complex compared to aortic valve. And we're going to be involved in more than 10 device trials. So I think another thing to look for in the future is to look at which device will be successful, but also which device should we choose based on the pathology. And I think that will be the most exciting part of these transcatheter therapies in the next 10 years. Terrific. And Pat? So Chuck, I'm a bit of a dreamer. So my wish list for the next 10 years is that I hope very much that we come up with a medical therapy to prevent people from getting to the point that they need their aortic valve replaced. Yeah. And the Brigham is the place for that to be done. We're learning a lot about inflammation. We're learning a lot about how the cells on the surface of the valve become sick over time and new strategies to prevent those valves from thickening and calcifying over decades to the point that they need Yoshi to bail them out. And it's a little bit frustrating when you can see something like this happen among your patients who are in their mid-50s and you're just watching them until they're 70. So my wish list contains curing aortic stenosis for large numbers of people. And I think the second thing the Brigham is poised to do, about which I'm very excited, is really the combination of implementation science and artificial intelligence. So by this I mean we actually know a fair amount about what we should be doing, but we don't know if we're doing it right. And we don't know if we have the kind of systems efficiencies in place. But we have all sorts of smart people who are taking this kind of information. Usha was talking about wearables, mobile technology, and props on your iPhone, and figuring out through the electronic health record to identify people who are in trouble and get them the help they need. But then to use something like artificial intelligence, machine learning, or something in the future that makes all of us a little bit smarter about how it is that this person gets to sit in front of you. Genetics right, environmental influences, medication history, cardiovascular disorders. I think we're just sort of scratching the surface, and this is where I think the Brigham can shine. That's fantastic. What a great way to sort of close this out, Pat. Thank you. Given the hour, we're not going to open it up to a public Q&A, but I'm going to ask the panel to stick around, and we'll stay here afterwards, so please come find us with your questions. With that, I want to thank our panel for giving of their time and their wisdom. And we'll stay.
Good. Good. <laughs> and Betsy, I'll return it to you. Yeah, thank you. Well, what an amazing evening. I can't begin to tell you how proud I am of my colleagues. This is really what makes the Brigham so special. As Dale said, our physicians and our nurses listen, they think, they collaborate, and they want to do what's best for the patient and families. And I think that's the secret sauce that has been perpetuated in training at the Brigham for generations upon generations. It's certainly what attracted me to come to the Brigham to do my medical training a very long time ago. But that is our future. We embrace technology, we embrace cutting edge, but that's insufficient. We have to combine the technology with being wonderful physicians and care providers, and I think that's what you saw this evening. So to all of you, thank you. Thank you very much. I want to thank each of you again for being here tonight and for each of you in your own way for your ongoing support and for your friendship of the Brigham. And I'm wishing you a wonderful evening and a very safe, happy, and healthy 2020. Good night.